turn, please, to Romans chapter 8, the geographical center of Paul's epistle to the Romans, Romans the epistle. What does it mean to think apocalyptically, to think in terms of an apocalypse, a stunning revelation of God into history? For one thing, to think apocalyptically is not to think about ourselves. It's to think about a divine action performed in Christ Jesus. It's to live our lives not to ourselves, but to the one who died for all and in whom all died and who lives again by resurrection. It's to think big, and it's to think that our Lord Jesus Christ both died and came alive again to be the Lord of the living and the dead, as Romans 14.9 says. To think apocalyptically is what Romans trains us to do. It begins in its thesis statement in Romans 1.17 by saying that this gospel, which is truly good news, contains the apocalypse of the righteousness of God, which is God's righteous act in Christ Jesus. And it closes in Romans 16.25 with the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to this apocalypse which has been chronically sealed. It's been sealed for time and is now being manifested by God's command, the command of the eternal God. The things that we expect in the future are already done in the eternal God. The things that we expect in a glorious future are already done in the eternal God. And as we're going to see, there is a phrase... There's a mantra that has characterized so much of theology, and it's a pretty good one. And it's already not yet, as we've seen. But I think there's one that's been suggested by Eberhard Jungel. He's a German scholar. I think he teaches in America. He's probably in his 80s by now. But he substitutes another thing for that mantra, already not yet. He says, even now... Only then completely. Even now, only then completely. That's to think apocalyptically. To think apocalyptically is not self-centered. It is an individualistic thinking. It's the thinking that truly regards God's action in Christ as a sweeping act of universal redemption that we're caught up in. And we're caught up in that sweeping and magnificent action of salvation. Now, before we get started today, I have two quotations that I want to put together. The first one is from a man named Frédéric Godet. I'm getting, all, I'm getting scholars from all over the world lately. Frédéric Godet, G-O-D-E-T. And he wrote this, and I think it's a very stunning and all-encompassing kind of statement. He said, Golgotha, that theater where human sin displayed itself as nowhere else, 
was at the same time the place of the most extraordinary manifestation of divine grace. Golgotha, Skull Hill as it's called, all the way up to the top where Christ was crucified and where the stake upon which he hung was driven into the skull of the Adamic ontology and where Christ died as the one for all. Another statement in a book I read years ago, and I keep referring to it, is called The Meaning of Anxiety. And it's by an eminent psychologist who also pretty much is a philosopher named Rollo May. And he studied dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of cases in his psychiatric practice. And he said, in all of these cases, he noticed one thing. He said, anxiety and hostility covert and overt, rise and fall together. Anxiety and hostility, whether it's covert, hidden, or overt and hysterical, rise and fall together. And I think this has a psychological impact that we can discover in Romans. Romans, the epistle, continued, considered in its totality, is a lot of things, and that's what we're really majoring on on Sunday mornings. We're moving from the left and the right flanks on Wednesdays and Thursdays in what I call a pincer strategy to move toward the center. If we go to the center, the, the geographical center, we might say, if Roman was, Romans was a map and we could view Romans as a map, there would be a central highlands, there's a lot of high rises, a high mountain ranges in the center, beginning with Romans 5.1, and going all the way to Romans 11.36 in the, I call them the central highlands. But even in the center of the central highlands is a passage that I want to look at, if not all the way through today, in our Sunday mornings and elsewhere, Romans 8.31-39. That is the heartland of Romans. It's the center of the central highlands. And as we've learned before in Habakkuk 3, 19, metaphorically speaking, the Lord has given us hinds feet, like the feet of a mountain goat, to be able to walk in the high places and to walk in those sometimes precarious places of the word of God. One of those high places is Romans eight thirty one to 39. Stunningly, when you look at Romans, the center is Romans 5 through 8, and then there's another center, 9 through 11. Both end with a tremendous statement of the love of God in Christ Jesus, and especially Romans eleven thirty three to 36 gives praise to his salvific wisdom. His wisdom is his saving design, incidentally. God's wisdom is defined as his saving design, his cosmic saving design. And to think apocalyptically is to think of yourself as a tiny part of a sweeping salvific action, of a new creation. Salvation itself is a new creation. And therefore, it is entirely an act of God. In the original creation, we call it, God acted alone. He acted triunally he acted in the triune sense but he did not act with human agency in the new creation god acts alone salvation is a divine act 
It does not require a human action, nor does it require human response. The only human response that's involved in salvation is the human response of Jesus Christ in perfect obedience to the Father, by whose faithfulness we have eternal life, and all creation will receive eternal life. To think in terms of the whole of Romans, as I'm always keeping in my mind, it's a stunning thing that at the very center in Romans 5 through 8, we have the love of God revealed, the love of God in Christ Jesus. We call the love of God unrestricted, and it's unrestricted precisely because it's the love of God in Christ Jesus. We call it inescapable. And it's inescapable precisely because it's the love of God that's been demonstrated once and for all in Christ Jesus for us all. We call this love something from which we cannot be separated, and we are inseparable from it precisely because it is the love of God in Christ Jesus, and we are in Christ Jesus. And so Romans, the epistle... Considered in its totality is a lot of things. It's very versatile. It does a lot of things. Not least, it's the application of a cosmic Christocentric soteriology. That is a universal Christ-centered act of redemption. And when this is applied to the hostility of group biases as we have them illustrated in Romans, and which are far more illustrated in our own times. Romans applies this cosmic or universe-wide salvific action in Christ to the anxiety and the hostility which divides the saints in the city of Rome, which divides peoples of all kinds today. It has the power to bring about the result of a real loving reconciliation and a peaceful unity among all the saints. But it also has the power to do the same today in a much wider gyre, a widening gyre, a widening swath. In Romans, Paul the Apostle brings the mystery in toto. And incidentally, we have last week's message on the mystery in toto in print, beefed up a little bit, and roughly, very roughly edited, ready for you to take home with you if you want it. The mystery in toto, which is God's plan to reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth, to do his own will in heaven as it is on earth, or to do it on earth as it is in heaven, to reconcile reconcile and recapitulate all things in Christ Jesus. Romans brings this mystery in toto to bear on the anxiety and the hostility of believers in Rome. In this way, we can see Romans as God sending his word to heal. As Psalm 107.20 says, he sends his word to heal them. He heals the twin malady of anxiety and hostility that segregates groups in Rome and demands that they hold tightly to their group biases. And so the apocalyptic view of salvation by its very nature is an exposition, an expose, a display 
of a universe-wide redemption wrought by God in Christ and by the Holy Spirit, who is to be poured out on all flesh. The mystery in toto, that's the mystery in its total universal scope and horizon, is the proclamation of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and of the universal impact, the redemptive impact, reconciling impact of the cross of Christ so that the individual is not primarily in view. This goes against almost everything in Western society today. The individual isn't primarily in view. People are discovering this in little statements like, it's not all about you. And that's the gospel also. It sweeps you up. Don't get me wrong. Individually, as well as collectively, we are swept up into the embrace of the one with nail-scarred hands. The forever embrace. So, the individual is not primarily in view. Instead, what's in view is the entirety of the universe in all of its proportionate being, from the principal angels on down to vegetation, on down to the sparrow, whom the Father knows falls from the sky. And how much more are you than many sparrows? It is my belief that God not only restores all of creation, but restores all of creation in all of its times of existence. Nothing will be lost. And this is because of a passage that we'll be getting into not too distant future, in the not too distant future, Ephesians 1.10, where he talks about in the fullness of times. In the dispensation or the administration of the fullness of times to reconcile all things in the heavens and on earth. For God the Father to set his own household in order, which is a household which involves many families in heavens and earth, which God gives names to. He brings together all of creation and all of its times. We'll have to look then at the distinction between eternity and time and realize that time is not the opposite of eternity as Augustine thought and as Plato influenced many theologians, but that within eternity there is pure duration. There is true duration. There is movement. There is order. There is the order of a triune divine being moving toward one direction only, and that being a salvific saving, salutary, you might call it, redemptive action. We're caught up in it. So instead of being thinking only individually, we think of ourselves as part of the entirety of the universe in all of its proportionate being, including the individual, as being the object of a magnificent, all-encompassing, divine, salvific action which sweeps us all up in the nail-scarred hands of our crucified Lord. That's to think apocalyptically. Anxiety arises out of the individual's sense of isolation 
what the philosophers would call existential isolation. Anxiety arises from that sense of individual isolation. And then it brings about a caged-in feeling, a feeling of entrapment, a feeling nowhere to turn. And that gives rise, as it would with any caged animal, to either a covert or overt hostility. An appropriation of the gospel that apocalypses the righteousness of God, a real appropriation of this good news which apocalypses or stunningly reveals the righteousness of God as a comprehensive act of his saving wisdom goes a long way to allaying anxiety and the terrible insecurity that leads to hostility and ressentiment. At the roots of ressentiment and hostility is an insecurity and an anxiety that people experience, unfortunately, as the reality of their life and living. The sense of security that this gospel brings, in turn, puts rest to the feelings of hostility toward others with whom one formerly compared himself or herself competitively. When we compare ourselves with others competitively, As Paul says, that's not wise. That's not according to the wisdom of God's saving design. Measuring ourselves by ourselves, comparing ourselves with ourselves, not wise. In fact, it always gives rise to hostility. It can't help but do that. In this regard, let's consider then a part of Romans that is part of the central highlands and the heartland of this letter. If Romans were envisioned as a map, Romans eight thirty one to 39 would be the heartland or the central highlands, if you will. And it's a stunning thing that it begins with the declaration that God is for us. God is for us. If there's one group divided against another in Rome, as we're illustrating in our Wednesdays and Thursday nights teachings, then perhaps if they all knew that God was for us all, they'd start to drop some of the hostility, drop some of the anxiety that produces hostility. And God would bring to bear on those walls built of ressentiment and mutual hostility the reconciling gospel of Christ. So this is just the first pass to this passage. This passage you can't get in one teaching. But I'll start with my translation. I've translated it from the Greek text in Romans eight thirty-one. Paul says, what can we say? And the word pros here is used, which means against. What can be said? What can we say against these things? Is really the way it should be translated in a rhetorical sense. The answer that's demanded is nothing. What can we say against these things? He's speaking here of things that he began to discuss in Romans 5.1 onward. And it has to do with the love of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, being justified, rectified 
by faithfulness, Christ's faithfulness, we have peace with God. We all have peace with God. And we rejoice and we boast in the hope of the glory of God and in this grace wherein we stand. And he goes in to talk about the love of God that's poured out in our hearts. These things then is everything up to this point beginning in Romans 5.1. What can we say against these things? He says nothing. If God is for us, and he uses that little word E for if, and there's four ways you can classify that word E, E-I, if, and this is a fulfilled condition, and it should be translated more like since. It's a fulfilled condition. It means, and he is. If God is for us, and he is, Who can be against us? Indeed, if God is for us, I would ask this, and I think Paul is hinting at this. If he he is for us, and if he has elected us in Christ Jesus, who is left to be against us? Because Christ embodies all of his creation in his own election. Romans 8.32, and here it's strange in these central highlands, we have the hill of Golgotha, which was the theater where human sin displayed itself as nowhere else, but at the same time, the extraordinary manifestation of divine grace. When Jesus was lifted up, as John twelve thirty two says, as John three fourteen says, as John eight twenty eight says, he was lifted up to see a vista all the way up to the mountain top of Golgotha. From there, he could see the horizon of all of humankind and say this, Father, forgive them. All the human race under the power of sin. All the human race under the reign of death. All the human race not just enslaved to sin, but colluding with it conspiring with it, complicit with it, willfully. And thank God, it's not up to human will, our human will, but the human will of Jesus Christ, inseparable from God the Father's will, by which we are saved. Human will is involved in our salvation, but not ours. The human will of Jesus Christ, inseparably joined to the Father's will to save all, is the will involved in our salvation. Did you hear that, Will? All right. Verse 32, since indeed God did not spare his very own son, I determined to know nothing among you, Paul said, but Christ. And him crucified. Isn't it strange that right at the geographical center of Romans, the epistle that Christ and him crucified is at that center that radiates all throughout. Once you appreciate the center of our so great salvation, you then begin to appreciate the unlimited horizon, the unlimited impact, that arises from it. Therefore, to delimit or to limit in any way the horizon to a small group of elect 
is unknowingly to blaspheme the depth of the cross, the center, Christ and him crucified. So, since indeed, God did not spare his very own son, but freely handed him over. Paul really capitalizes on that word, handed over, paradidomi. It's used of Judas who handed him over in the garden to the temple police, where it's translated as betray, but God handed him over for judgment. The last judgment, as we taught on Thursday night, is the best day in human history. It's the last day of human history, and it's the demonstration not of man's sinfulness, but of God's spectacular universal grace. It is a universal rectification of all humanity, and it is the greatest day of rejoicing that humanity will ever know. And that rejoicing will go on into the ages to come where all of creation is a new creation. And if it's a new creation, it's the action of God and not man. Since God did not spare his very own son, but freely handed him over. Remember how Romans opens in 118 to 32? Paul gives a kind of, and I think Phoebe probably performed it as Campbell thinks, a kind of sermon by a legalistic, nomistic Jewish Christian teacher who rails on the terrible idolatry and immorality of the Gentiles, of the pagans. And three times he said, God handed them over. Paradidomi, God handed them over, 124, 126. God handed them over. 128, God handed them over. They are without excuse. And then Paul gets right in this guy's face in 2-1 and says, you are without excuse, whoever you are who judge. And then he goes into a takedown of this nomistic gospel. But when he really gets to the end of the argument that smashes this false teacher and this false limited gospel of a limited election, He says in Romans 4.25 that Jesus Christ, our Lord, was handed over. Paradidomi. He was handed over. He was handed over for our sins, our transgressions, our trespasses. The sins of the whole world, John chimes in in 1 John 2.1. Not our sins only as Christians. Not our sins only as Jews. Not our sins only as Gentile Christians, the sins of the whole world. He was handed over. And then he was raised up because of our justification. Our justification. The rectification of all. Even now. The rectification of all. Even now. Only then completely. Only then at the last judgment completely. At the last judgment, the one, the son, whom God did not spare, is to be the judge. And he's the one that was handed over to be judged. Can you get better news? I can't think of better news than that. That my judge is the one judged for me. That's the last judgment. 
It has nothing to do with God's wrath except for the fact that the nail-scarred hands of our judge reveals that it was done. The last judgment isn't going to be where human sin is displayed in its as nowhere else, like some of the Christian tracts portray. Sin's not even in the picture. The only thing in the picture, picture is the God of all grace and the knowledge of the glory of God emanating from the face of our gracious judge. The last judgment is a day of universal rectification, pan-humanly speaking, all humankind. All creation also will be set right. All relationships will be reconciled and brought into the right kind of relationship. Perpetrators as well as victims will be set right in that day. What a day that will be. Since God did not spare his very own son, but freely, freely handed him over for us. You see another word in there, though? I see all. How will he not with him, that is, having been handed over for us, how will he not freely grant us now all things? All things are already yours, even now. Eberhard Jungel, you are correct. All things are already yours. If you don't believe it, look it up on your own in 1 Corinthians 3, 1. Paul, uncharacteristic of him in 1 Corinthians, brings forth this truth right in the middle of something. Really, it's not uncharacteristic of him. You know what he says in 1 Corinthians three twenty-one to 23? To that carnal, carnival mess in Corinth... You know what he says to him? All things are yours. Even now, but not fully enjoyed yet. They will be. Then he says, including, this is what's yours, belongs to you. The world. To start. That's a good start. And life. It's pretty general. And death. And things present. And things to come. They all belong to you, he said. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. You belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. You belong to God in Christ. Nothing can separate you in this world, in life, in death. And we taught this week, what about the unbelieving who died? They're with Christ. They have life. They have divine life. They have comfort. They have joy. I don't care what your dogma teaches. The Bible teaches quite the opposite of what dogma teaches. And what misinterpretations of parables teach when they fail to recognize that Jesus Christ isn't supporting but demolishing Egyptian mythology about eternal hell. He's not supporting it. He's demolishing it. 
Eternal hell for any individual does not belong in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is outside of the realm of Christ, and those who preach it are outside of the kingdom of God for the time being. They're not inheriting the kingdom of God for the time being. Just thought I'd throw that in. So better than the mantra already, but not yet, is Jungle's suggestion, even now, only then completely. The world is yours, even now. That means nothing in the world can separate you from the love of Christ. Life is yours now. Death, you own it already now. But then completely, only then completely. Even now, only then completely. I like that better than now and not yet. Or already not yet. Our future is colored entirely with grace. There are many colors in the rainbow of our future, but they're all grace. It's called the polypokilos, the many-tinted grace of God, as 1 Peter 4.10 puts it. And this has to be true because God handed his son over, didn't spare him handed him over. He didn't spare him. He handed him over to judgment for our sins. And the son wasn't just dumbly doing that. The Bible says he loved us and gave himself over for us, paradidomi. He was in perfect agreement with the father about this divine saving action. Again, there is a human will involved in your salvation. It's the human will of Jesus, which is inextricably linked and tethered to the Father's will to save all and to bring everyone to the saving knowledge of the truth that's embodied in Jesus. The human will involved in your salvation was the will of Jesus. He loved me, Paul said. The individual comes into it. He loved me, and he gave himself over for me for judgment. So the life I I now live, the life that's mine now, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I was crucified with Christ, and it's a good thing because no one living can be justified in God's view. As we learn from Psalm 143, too. I was crucified with him, thank God, because nobody living can be right in God's eyes. So we died. And our life is hid with Christ in God. Someday, you say, the secrets of people are going to be revealed. That's what the Jewish teacher said the Jewish Christian teacher, but the Christian Jewish apostle said, yes, that's true. The secrets of men and women will be revealed on a day where we will be judged through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, you know, the only secret that's going to be revealed about you is that you were secreted away in Christ, in God. That's secret now. Nobody can see it. It's not a placard on your forehead. But you're hid with Christ. That's a secret. You're in a secret place. 
And that secret is the secret of all people. And when the judgment happens, God reveals your secret. You know what your secret is? Not that you wished somebody would die so that you could get their place. Christ died for that. Not so that you wish that you could be promoted so that you could hammer somebody else. That's a sin for which Christ died. The secret about you that will be revealed in the last judgment is that you were hidden with Christ in God. And that will be manifested now because when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. That's the gospel of the glory of the Christ. It's not just Christ who's glorified. It's everything in him being glorified. All humanity, we call it pan-humanly in him. That's why we boast in the hope of the glory of God because it's going to be resilient everywhere. It's almost a good thing that our times right now are ensconced in such a vicious, irrational, wicked, mutual ressentiment and hatred because it's a display of what the op of of the opposite of what is to be. Thank God. When all things are reconciled in heaven and on earth. And I don't mean that it is a good thing, but it is good in comparison as a comparison, as a contrast. So. Our future is colored entirely with the palette of grace colors. This has to be true because God handed his son over to judgment for our sins. And the son loved us and gave himself for us so that our judge in the final judgment is the one who endured our judgment. So there is nothing at all to look forward to. In the last judgment. Except for our final acquittal being made dramatically manifested as an apocalypse. It was an acquittal that was achieved already. And is even now ours. Because it was declared at the top of Mount Golgotha with the word from Jesus' lips. Maybe it's familiar to you. To tell us that. Echoed all the way through to the end of Revelation where it sounds like this. It is done. In Revelation 21.6. Look, I'm making all things new, not some things new. I'm making a new creation. Salvation is God making a new creation. I don't know anybody else who calls things that do not exist into existence with a word. God does. I don't know anyone else who can take something dead and gone like dried bones in a desert and says live and they live. God does. If you think you had a part in your salvation, then you go find a valley full of dried bones of dead bodies that have been dead and there's no more marrow left in them bones and you tell them to live. And if they live, I'll say, well, then you can save yourself. And if you can take a hundred billion galaxies and constellations of stars with spectacular color palettes in them that are only now being discovered by telescopic lenses. If you can say 
that these did not exist before, but with a word you can bring them into existence, then if you can do that, you can save yourself. Have at it. If you can, as Romans 10, 6, 8 through 8 says, if you can ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or if you can take a voyage to where no man has gone before in the enterprise, not into space, but into the abyss of unexplored nothingness and bring Christ up, you can save yourself. That's what the righteousness of faithfulness says. But instead, the word is very close to us, even in our mouths. And God evokes faith. Not to save us, but so that we can enjoy the so great salvation that he's bequeathed to us through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's how we live faithfully in these end of the ages. I'm sure you read recently that the rapture is going to happen on April 23rd. So this might be one of my last messages. Now, so what are we doing here? Let's go enjoy some things in life. No, let's see. So the last judgment will not be a theater where human sin will be displayed. You ever see pictures of the last judgment? All this horrible judgment's going to happen. And sin is going to be displayed. Everybody's going to see. That's not what's going to happen. Sin was displayed in Golgotha when people called for the crucifixion of the Son of God. And we were all participants and complicit. What will be displayed there is only the grace because he who became sin, he who knew no sin, he who committed no sin, he who would think sin to be unthinkable became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that's the only reality that's going to be apparent in the so-called last judgment. It's a lot better than rescuing a few billion or a few million lucky lottery winners in a thing called the rapture, which is a false doctrine, started by one person, picked up by other people who didn't know the New Testament or the old, carried on to our present time. Jesus isn't coming to rescue a few and then bomb the earth with hailstones that are 100 pounds. He's coming to stay and to transform the heavens and the earth by his presence. So I might have to go two messages on this one next Sunday, too, or whatever. So the last judgment will not be a theater where human sin will be displayed again in order to be judged. Why should it be? Of course it's not. Not at all. Because sin was condemned in the flesh of the Son of God, which it says earlier on in Romans 8, 3. As we climb the last highlands, whom God did not spare, there is only going to be the most extraordinary spectacle of universal divine grace for all of humanity in all of its times and for all of creation, even that sparrow that fell out of the air in A.D. 30 that Jesus spoke about. 
All of creation right now is experiencing a chronic anticipation of its healing. Chronic, because it's in time, chronos, in times. This mystery has been hidden for times immemorial. It's a chronic anticipation. We're part of it. We too groan, Paul says. He doesn't consider himself just an individual. He said, all creation groans, and so do we. We groan with it. We groan with it. We're all suffering the pangs of chronic anticipation of liberation from slavery to corruption. All of us. With all creation. It's what Tom Joad longed for in The Grapes of Wrath when he gave his little speech about, Ma, I just feel part of a consciousness of everyone else is part of. And Steinbeck was trying to deliver to us a Marxist vision. But the Marxist vision is so limited because it forgets something like resurrection, redemption, Christ and him crucified, God's divine action. And all he could say is religion is the opioid of the masses. That may be true, but redemption is at the heart of the glorious gospel of God. Romans 8. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? You know what that means? Who has the power to move to impeach you from your position in Christ? Who? Who will bring a charge, the future of en kaleo, against God's elect? En kaleo is a charge. Paul had already said, as many as he called kaleo, he justified. So who can bring a charge against the calling of God, against God's elect? And then he asked, this is actually a question in the rhetorical battle that's going on he says who will bring a charge against God's elect then he says God the one who justifies really the only one who can bring a charge against God's elect is the one who elected all of humankind in his son Jesus Christ God does one thing he rectifies he does not condemn he rectifies Who's going to move to impeach your position as God's elect in Christ? God, who justifies? The scenario envisaged here is the last judgment. What's being envisaged by the prophetic word here is this last judgment. Who's going to move then? To accuse you and to impeach you and to remove you from God's elect. Who can do it? There will be no one to accuse or to move to impeach the elect of God. Not even the accuser of the brethren who will have already been transformed into his original creaturely beauty without sin. There will be no one to accuse or to move to impeach the elect of God. The reason for this is there will be... It's not like there's going to be accusers there, but their mouths are shut. It's going to be that there are no accusers there at all. That's the point. 
Because Jesus Christ is the elect one. And in him all are elected. In the double predestination of Calvin, which was fixed by Karl Barth, the only person who was predestined to rejection was Jesus Christ. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing the rejection of the one who died for all. And if one died for all, it seems like Paul said somewhere else, all died when Christ died. And since no one can, no one alive can be right in his sight, then maybe dying does it. It does do it if you died with Christ, and we did. So there's no accusers at all because Jesus Christ is the elect one of God, Isaiah 42, 1, who embraces all of humanity and all of creation in God's elective love. And because God is the one who justifies, rectifies the ungodly, so that the only beings in the last judgment are those who are rectified and acquitted. So who's going to accuse you? A fellow rectified person? Or God who did the rectify? Who does he rectify? Who does he justify? Who does he set right? The ungodly. Romans 4, 5. That takes care of the whole human race in Adam. So there are those, however, today who accuse. Have you discovered this yet? Preach this gospel for about five minutes. You'll find out. There are those who today accuse. This is the turn of the ages. This isn't the end of this age yet. This is at the turn of the ages. There are those who accuse. There are those who accuse during this turn of the ages, and the accusations often arise from hostility which rises and falls with anxiety. With the painful insecurity that's compelled to compete and to compare and to preserve at all costs the exclusive privileges that one assumes belongs to herself or himself or to her or his selective group alone. Anxiety is the opposite of faith, which is the assurance of things hoped for. What am I hoping for? I'm hoping for that which is even now to be totally complete. And it will be. Hostility is the opposite of the love of Christ, which controls the person who knows and has determined that if one died for all, then all have died. So hostility is the opposite of the love of Christ, which controls the person who has determined that since one died for all, then all have died. Anxiety is a kind of living to oneself. Anxiety is a living to oneself. But Christ died and rose again that we should not any longer live to ourselves, but to him who died and rose again. That's why we come to church, to take that curvature in, I'd say, which keeps on sneaking up 
on us all week long and to take that curvature in upon ourselves and to turn that around and turn it toward looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is now set down at the right hand of God, the father. So run this race with patience. You have need of patience. And so do I. It's a constant battle. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh so that you cannot do the things you want to do. But if you walk in the spirit, the righteousness of God that's required by Torah will be fulfilled in you. And that righteousness is love. So as we move to a close today, which is only one third of what I was going to teach, because I just can't help being a preacher. Don't hold it against me. That's my answer, Brian. You can use that if you want. When someone says, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a preacher, but don't hold that against me. Because usually people will. Or they'll start saying, did I say something? Did I swear? You know, they're talking to you for 10 minutes. They find out you're a preacher. You can tell they're looking back at their whole conversation. You know, if they were honest, they'd say, "Did, did I swear? And I'd say, hell no, I don't think so. Maybe you did. I don't know. Um, how the hell should I know? You know, that's something like that. Um, so we'll move to a close here. Hostility springs from living for oneself, whereas love serves others in newness of life and the power of the spirit. The last part of this can be construed as a rhetorical question that demands an emphatic no. Of course not for an answer. Will God who only justifies and who has finally rectified all humanity in Christ move to impeach you, his elect? Of course not. Look at 834. Who's the one who will condemn? Christ, the one who died? The absurdity of this, this is what they call in rhetoric a reductio ad absurdum, a reducing down to absurdity, a certain thing. Christ will condemn you at the last, that's an absurdity. He died for you. Christ, who died even more, was raised up. Now he's going back to Romans 4.25. He was handed over, Romans 4.25a, Romans 8.32. Now he's raised up. Romans 4.25b and Romans 8.34. He was also raised up. That's because of our justification, which came about through his faithful death for us in Romans 4.25. So will the one, who is the one who will condemn? Christ, the one who died, even more who was raised up, who is at the right hand of God advocating for us. On our behalf, it's advocating who is going to condemn us, our advocate. That's like saying someone says, I'm an, I'm a child advocate. Here's one of the children I'm advocating for. Damn them. Oops, I swore again. That's not really swearing. Damn is a word. It's in the Bible. So is hell as a word. It's called Hades and Sheol. It means death has nothing to do with an eternal separation from God even though people with doctorate degrees who boast about it think so. Hmm. 
So then, we got room for one more verse, I think, before you go get your Arby's gyro. Hero. Paul's intent here is not to teach a doctrine of eternal security for the individual. Though that's there. But rather to bring to an end the mutual accusations occurring between self-segregated groups of people in the city of Rome who belong to Jesus Christ. As a pastor, and Paul functions here more as a pastor than anywhere else. As a pastor, not anywhere else, but in one of the most important places where he acts as a pastor, an apostolic pastor. Because he knows the state of the flock, as Proverbs 27, 23 says. He knows the state of God's flock in Rome. And he knows that there are divisions rooted in the anxiety of insecurity. These divisions are rooted in the the hostility even is rooted in the anxiety of insecurity. Why do people slam and shame each other today? It's the biggest thing going on. Have you seen it? I haven't. I'm not on social media. Never will be. Thank you very much. But what is the biggest thing they do? Shaming. Body shaming is another thing. They shame one another. What is the root of someone shaming someone else if not their own personal insecurity? Their own anxiety that gives rise to hostility. Their own need to strike out at someone else because they're comparing. Their whole life is a comparison with others. A measuring of oneself by others. Apocalyptic thinking heals that thing so splendidly. So he says, he turns it up now in these last verses. I better read them real fast in verse 35. In the meantime, that is, he's speaking now about in the meantime, even now. In the meantime, and I've said it before, the meantime, that is between now and the end of this evil age, when the full time has come, the night is far spent, but until the night is over, it's a mean Time. The meantime is a mean time. It's full of mean girls and mean boys and mean people and mean people with ideological superiorities over others. Mean people. It's a mean time. Better prepare your kids for it. It's a mean time. But you can be loving. In the meantime, until that last judgment, when we fully experience our rectification, he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Then he gives these things a name. He gives things a name. Oppression, trouble, persecution, hunger, destitution, danger, violence. These are all part of this age. And then there should be a parenthesis in verse 36. Paul says, all these things can be expected because, as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're accounted as sheep. That's the flock. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Close parentheses. So what you got to do is go right from 35 to 37. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Let's give them all names. Mr. Oppression, Ms. Trouble, Mr. Persecution, 
Mr. and Mrs. Hunger and Destitution. Danger, violence. Verse 37, no, in all these things, that's during this meantime, we are super victors through him who loved us. That's Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself over for us. Not just handed over, but handed himself over. So the idea here persists that first came out in Romans 5.2. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. And in 5.3, we boast in our troubles. Jumping quickly to 838 so I can read the rest of this passage. For I have been persuaded. And I can say that as a pastor. I haven't got much on the ball, but I do know this. I'm persuaded. God has evoked faith in me. God has evoked an unshakable, deep, and abiding confidence in me for these things that are hoped for. And I can't, I've never been shaken in them for now for 45 years when he first gave me the gift of faith. And so as a pastor, I can do this, and I hope it penetrates into your very soul. I am persuaded, Paul said. And I agree with him. The passive voice here indicates that his confidence was evoked in him by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And it is in his own persuasion. I have been persuaded. Like he says in Romans 14, 14, I have been persuaded by the Lord Jesus himself that nothing is unclean in itself. That neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor things in the present, nor things about to be, nor powers above, nor powers below, nor any other created thing will ever have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's talking now about the meantime before that wonderful day when our rectification becomes manifest and enjoyed fully forever. Until that time, none of these things have the power to separate you from the love of God because that love of God is God's omnipotent power married to unrestricted love. And it's in Christ Jesus where you are. In fact, where everybody is. He's already Lord. It's not something you can make him to be. He is Lord of the Muslims, Lord of the Jews, Lord of the atheists, Lord of the theists, Lord of dead people, Lord of living people. He is the Lord because to God, Jesus said, all are living in Luke 20, verses 37 to 38. And that includes those who we think are dead. They're alive to God they're living to God and they're not living to God so he can burn them forever either blasphemer dear old doctor blasphemer in closing therefore please note that there's nothing in all of creation that will ever be able to separate us because we are in the creator who makes all things new And if you're in Christ and you are, you're already new. You're part of a new creation that God created. Salvation is a new creation. And when God finished creating, he said, it's good. He even said in an overused saying, it's all good. He even said in Genesis 131, it's very good. And so once you're a new creation, God doesn't just proclaim you to be righteous. 
He says, you're good. This reminds me of one more verse that I'm going to have to get to later, but I'll just hit it really fast. How about 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 17? For the love of Christ controls us, Paul says. Now it controls me. Because we have made this judgment. If one died, that's the one who died in Romans 8, 34. The one who died, is he going to condemn you? Paul said here in 2 Corinthians 5.14, about a year before he wrote Romans, if one died, that's Jesus, the one who died, if he died for all, then all died. All died. No one alive can be justified in God's sight, so all died in Christ to be justified by his death. All the human race now, even now, is justified in God's sight in the eternal God, in Christ Jesus. Did you know that? Of course you didn't. It's God's secret. But guess what he's done? He has proclaimed and commanded that this secret be proclaimed, be the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery that has been chronically silent, silent for the chronos, but is now being manifested, even now being manifested I got to think of ways to say it because it's so magnificent. I can't put it into words. It's called articulation. Pray for me that I will be able to articulate what? The mystery of the gospel. Because like Paul, I'm in chains to it. I'm chained to this now. I can't escape it. I got to do this. If I don't, woe unto me. So please pray that I can say what I see. I see, but I got to learn how to say it and to convey it. So he goes on, Paul, to say, this is the transformation you can expect right now in the meantime. He died for all. Moreover, he died for all in order that those who live, that's all, should live no longer for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. For this reason, from now on, we know no one according to the flesh. We know no one, nobody, according to the flesh. Why? Because if any person be in Christ, and what he's saying here is all are. If I don't know anyone after the flesh, because if anyone is in Christ, that means all are in Christ, so I can't know anyone after the flesh. I can't know anyone after their Adamic ontology. Because in Christ came a circumcision that didn't cut off the foreskin of the male penis, but cut off all of our association with Adam's ontology all together, all at once, even now. That's real. So we go through this radical transformation of our thinking toward people, all people. So he says, even for this reason, from now on, we know no one according to the flesh, even if we have formerly, as Paul did, regarded Christ himself According to the flesh, we now no longer regard him that way. In other words, he's not just another human. Listen carefully. We regard Christ not just as another human, any other human like other humans. We regard him now as the last Adam in whom are all humans. Do you think that way? 
you're gonna. You want to wait till the last judgment? You want to start now. So if any person is in Christ, the whole point of this is, and all are. If one died for all, then all died. So when he rose, it must be everybody's in him alive in the eternity of God. So if any person is in Christ, I put in brackets and all are, then the old has passed away. New creation, new creation. The old has passed away. Look, the new has come. The majority text says all things and all human beings have come new. They've been made new. Salvation is a new creation. Salvation, the work of God, is a new creation in which he makes all things new and calls all things very good. This is even now reality. But only then, following the last judgment, will this new creation be completely and gloriously manifested and fully enjoyed and experienced pan-humanly and universally by all creation. You can boast in this hope now. Go ahead and brag about it. And you can also boast during all of your troubles, all of our troubles that we must pass through in the meantime but which are not worthy of comparison with the glory that is to follow. Amen. Bye-bye.